The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. I invite you to turn with me back to Matthew chapter 13. We want to consider these kingdom of heaven parables here in Matthew chapter 13, and we spent an extended period of time looking at the first of these parables, the first of the seven parables that are here in this chapter, the first of those parables being the parable of the sower, which I believe is very important, especially since Jesus tells the disciples that if you don't understand this parable, then you're going to have problems understanding the rest of the parables. So it's very important to set that foundation of the different responses that God's children will have at a moment in time to the preaching of the word and the preaching of the gospel. And that's a, a very important thing for us to understand as we press into the kingdom. So he presents this first parable to them and then he explains that first parable to them. And then he gives six more parables. So there's a total of seven kingdom of heaven parables here in Matthew chapter 13. And this morning we'd like to focus on the second and the seventh parable, the second one being the parable of the wheat and the tares, and then the seventh and the last one being the parable of the net, which both teach similar lessons, I believe. So in Matthew chapter 13, we find that this parable, as it's originally given, is given to the multitude, and then he explains this parable in private with the disciples. So as he's giving this here, beginning in verse 24 of Matthew 13, he's giving the parable of the wheat and the tare. He's already given the parable of the sower to the multitudes and he does the same thing. He explains it in private, okay? So he gives the parable of the sower in public to the multitudes. He gives the parable of the wheat and the tares to the multitudes, as well as the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. Then he gives the explanation of the parable of the sower and the explanation of the wheat and the tares, as well as three additional parables, the parable of the hidden treasure, verse 44, parable of the pearl of great price, 45 to 46, and the parable of the net. He gives those to just the disciples, okay? So, this parable, as it's originally given, is given to the multitude, beginning in verse 24. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto, okay, that's what we're trying to consider together, right? The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. And while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. And when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, there appeared the tares also. And so the servants of the household came and said unto him, Sir, Didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? And he said, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let them both grow until the harvest. 
And in the time of the harvest, I will send the reapers. Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles and burn them, and gather the wheat into my barn. So he gives this parable to the multitudes, and then he gives two other parables to the multitudes. Verse 34, all these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables. Without a parable, he spake not unto them. Then in verse 36, when he's alone in private, he sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. Okay? So this is a parable that thankfully, along with the parable of the sower, that we don't really have to wonder about what this means. Jesus was gracious enough to explain this one to us. And some parables we... Uh, may not apply exactly correctly, but with the parable of the sower and the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus was gracious enough to explain it line by line. He gave us an, exposi an exposition of literally what he meant. So therefore, here in the private setting with the disciples, he explains what this parable means. Verse 37, He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy hath sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into a furnace of fire and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father who hath ears to hear let him hear then he goes on and gives to the disciples the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price we'll consider those in later messages and then he gives the parable of the net, which teaches a very similar lesson. What he's saying here is that you leave the wheat and the tares to grow up, and there's going to come a time where everything's going to be reaped, and God's going to take care of all that. And he, he's essentially teaching the same lesson in this last parable of the net. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but they cast the bad away. So shall it be in the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, he introduced this parable of the sower where we see different responses to the gospel and we considered in depth the different challenges of the different types of ground and hopefully we can overcome those obstacles and bring forth good, good fruit to the glory of God. But Jesus understood the nature of man and the nature of the people that he was going to be preaching this to. And our nature when we hear that, our nature when we hear the parable of the sower is to get too judgmental and start looking at their fruit and saying, you know what, that wayside person, you know, they didn't respond to the gospel the way they ought to. You know, they may be going to hell. That stony ground person, yes, they shot up very quickly and, 
and they were excited, but then they fell away. But you know what? That may be evidence that they're not really a child of God and they're probably going to hell. And then you see somebody bringing forth fruit and then they get choked out with the thorns of this world. And, you know, I used to see them in such, such faithful discipleship, but now they don't even come to church anymore and they don't exhibit any fruit. Man, I, I bet they're probably not, they probably weren't even a child of God to start with and, and they're probably going to end up in hell too. Our natural tendency is to gravitate to that line of thought. That's just the way we're wired, because we're judgmental. We're judgmental people. We're prideful, and we want to elevate ourselves above other people. They judging themselves by themselves are not wise. That's not a good metric. Uh, you don't judge yourself by other people. You judge yourself by the standard of Jesus Christ. So Jesus knows that that's going to be the natural tendency, and it's very sad that many people have taken the parable of the sower to be exactly that, the litmus test of eternal salvation, the litmus test of the evidence that will be exhibited in the actions of someone, and if you don't meet this bare minimum, then you're a false professor and you're going to hell. Isn't it interesting then the, that in the exact next parable, Jesus warns against that exact attitude? You know, there are many instances in Scripture where the Holy Spirit knew what the natural tendency of man would be and the questions that man would ask and the questions, the, the bad assumptions that we would reach, and the Holy Spirit preempted those by answering those questions for us. I think Romans 9 is a great example of that, right? We have the ex great exposition of election, God's choice of Jacob, to love Jacob and then to leave Esau in his sinful state. And God chose them, Romans chapter 9 and verse 11, the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works of him that calleth, and Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. You see God's sovereignty and choosing to bless, who he sees fit to bless and choose out a people according to his own goodwill and pleasure. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? And that, that's the accusation that's been levied against God ever since these, this, this truth of election was manifested in Scripture, right? Everyone looks at that because we feel like that we have to be in control and we feel like we have to have a choice. Everyone looks at that and says, well, that's not fair. God would be unrighteous to not give uh, Esau a chance. It would be unfair to not give him an opportunity to, to uh, earn eternal salvation, what shall we say? Is there unrighteousness with God? The Holy Spirit knew we were going to ask that question, didn't he? And he said, God forbid, right? God forbid. No, God is sovereign. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it's God's choice, and our natural response to that is to say, well, that's not fair. A little bit later on in the chapter, verse 19, will thou then say unto me, uh, why doth he find fault? For who hath resisted his will? And then he goes on to talk about the potter and the clay. Uh, we, our natural response is to say that that's not fair, that God has chosen, uh, chosen a people. And what did the Holy Spirit do? Well, it gave us the answer to the natural question that we were going to gravitate to. You know, uh, people have the same kind of attitude with hearing the gospel of salvation by grace alone and there's absolutely nothing you have to do to earn eternal life and there's nothing you can do to separate yourself from that. And they say, well, it just doesn't matter how you live. You can just go live any way you want, which 
just shows such a gross understanding of what grace is when they say that. But that's our natural tendency to say that. So what did the Holy Spirit do? It answered that question for you. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, right? So the Holy Spirit is preempting the questions that men will ask and Jesus Christ, who's perfectly one with the Holy Spirit, right, in the Godhead, he is doing the exact same thing here in this parable because he knows that man's natural tendency is going to start judging people that aren't bearing as much fruit as they are. It's amazing how people that have that mindset, the sliding scale is whatever you're doing at the moment. <laughs> as long as people are behind me, those are the people I don't have confidence in. But if I'm backing up a little bit, well, I may have to slide my bar back a little bit. As long as people are uh, not living as godly as me, those are the people that I wonder about. Okay, But that's our natural tendency because we're sinful. Even in a regenerated state, we're sinful. And Jesus gives this parable for the purpose to reject and rebuke. I think he could very easily say the same thing that we saw there in, in Romans when he's saying, if you have a tendency to judge the eternal state of these people based on their response to the gospel, I think we can say the same thing that we find consistently in the book of Romans, God forbid. That's what he's saying right here. God forbid. That's not your business. It's the Lord's business, okay? Who the sheep are and who the wheat are and who the tares are. So when we see people that are not living as godly as they, as they are, our natural response should not be the response of these servants, that their desire is to be tear hunters. <laughs> we want to go find all the tares. We want to go root up all the tares. We, we think that we know who the tares are. We think based on our evaluation of people's actions based on our evaluation of how they respond to the gospel we think we know who the non-elect are and it's our responsibility here in time to go purge them out <laughs> and he said no don't do that don't do that you wait until harvest time because in your ignorance of not having the right information what you're going to ultimately do is damage good wheat you're going to damage children of God who are struggling. You're going to damage the witness of the church, and you're going to damage the kingdom. So what he says is just leave them alone. That's the Lord's business. Just leave them alone. Let them grow. The Lord knows how to deal with the tares. Let them grow. And when it comes harvest time, the harvester and the reapers are the ones who are going to do the, the harvesting. Your role is not a harvester. That's not your role. Your role is a child of the kingdom in this parable. Do you understand that? Your role is just to grow and bring forth abundant fruit of wheat here in this parable. Bring forth abundant wheat that is honorable to the, the, the farmer. And the Lord is the one who's in charge of the harvest. So guess what? When it comes harvest time, he'll take care of the harvest. Okay? So now let's go through this parable uh, Point by point, okay? <clears throat> Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. 
And when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, there appeared the tares also. Now, in verse 37 was where he explained it, right? He that sowed the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. And that's interesting language. We have the children of God, right? And the children of the wicked one. Now, this is not to say that Satan has his children in the sense that God has his children. You know, before the foundation of the world, God picked his team and Satan picked his team. Uh, there was, I, thankfully it's not a really an issue now, but some uh, doctrine of two-seedism that uh, everyone has two seeds in them and, and then one just kind of wins out in the end and all this. Thankfully that's not uh, much of a heretical problem nowadays, but it was back in the day. But understand that Satan does not have children in the sense that God has children, okay? But what he's saying here is not that, that Satan chose out people that he, uh, you know, God chooses out of people and he borns them again. There's nothing that can change that. It's not that Satan chooses his people and they are unregenerate and nothing can ever change that, okay? What he's saying here is that these are people that follow, follow the direction of Satan in a way that a child would follow the direction of their father, right? Uh, Jesus talked to some people in John chapter 8, and he said, you're of your father the devil. Now, again, that doesn't mean that they are children of the devil in the same way that we're the children of God. It just means that they act a lot like Satan, right? How does Satan act? He seeks to kill and to steal and to destroy. Well, if there's people that are acting like that, then you are exhibiting the actions of someone that it could be deemed that you're almost kind of like his son because you're acting a lot like him, almost like he would be your father, okay? So don't get too concerned about the children of the wicked one language, okay? Satan doesn't have sons in the same way that we have sons, but there are some people that are heavily under the direction of Satan, the unregenerate. And that's one of the obstacles that we have in the kingdom. We saw a lot of obstacles in the parable of the sower, didn't we? We saw a lot of obstacles for us pressing into the kingdom. And one of the main obstacles that we deal with is simply those that are not born again, that don't have a love of God, that want to thwart our fruitfulness in the kingdom. I mean, that's something that Satan uses, doesn't he? He uses the tares. He uses those uh, that are not born again. So the enemy that sowed them, verse 39, is the devil. This is Satan. And the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. So now the crop begins to come up. The wheat begins to grow. But they find out, because they can't tell it right now by the way that these look, because tares closely resemble wheat. We're going to mention that in just a minute. So the wheat begins to come up, but the servants find out that tares have been sown among the wheat, and then they desire to purge those out. But Jesus gives this parable with an agricultural explanation that these people would have understood. You know, I, I always appreciate <clears throat> the way that Jesus saw fit to present these parables. They may not make as much sense to us, but they made perfect sense to 
everyone that he was preaching to uh, because we don't necessarily have wheat and tares that we're not all aware of that agricultural situation, right? But these people were. Uh, it says in the Gospels that the common people heard him gladly. But why did the common people hear him gladly? Because he talked about sowing seed. He talked about wheat and tares. He talked about fishing. He talked about uh, treasure hidden in the field. He talked their language. The Pharisees didn't talk their language, did they? <laughs> no, that they were trying to be highfalutin and make up their own rules and and then where people couldn't understand it, where they would have more power. But Jesus, he, he, he explained things very simply, right? And he explained it in a way that they could understand, everyone in the audience could understand exactly what he was talking about. These people knew exactly what wheat and tares were. Now, from my studies, tares would be the equivalent to something that's called a darnel, okay? A darnel. Tares that are a type of ryegrass that is called... Uh, commonly called wild wheat, a darnel that would grow up in the middle of wheat. And what's so important about this parable and the reason why he uses the, the wheat and the tares is because in the actual field, you could not tell a difference between the wheat and the tares until it came full harvest time. Until it was fully ripe and fully harvested, the tares looked just like the wheat. But when they became fully ripe, when they became fully ready, uh, these darnels would change from the golden uh, color of, of wheat, right? They would change to black, which is very appropriate, isn't it? That the wicked would change to a black color. So uh, there was a period of time where you literally could not, it didn't matter how experienced you were, as a, uh, as a servant in, on this farm, there was a period of time where you cannot tell the difference between wheat and tares. But then when it becomes full harvest time, it's very apparent because the wheat ripened to good-looking golden wheat and then the tarnels turn to black, all right? So they resemble wheat until they fully mature. But then when they become fully uh, ripe, they exhibit a black color, and surprise, surprise, these darnels can be toxic to the person that would eat them. Uh, they would make them sick, they're very bitter, and they cause drowsiness and dizziness and vomiting. Surprise, surprise, the, the, dar, uh, the darnels and the tears aren't good for you. <laughs> now, the problem though, the problem though, and these people understood what Jesus was saying perfectly, was that there is a period of time where you cannot tell. It doesn't matter how experienced you are. You cannot tell the difference between the wheat and the tares. The only way you can fully tell the difference is when they are fully ripe and it comes harvest time. So what he's saying there is you do not have enough information to accurately determine the wheat and the tares previous to harvest time. So therefore, what do you do? You wait till harvest time, right? But these servants have a zeal and, and zeal's good, right? They, they care about the purity of the field and we should care about the purity of the field, right? We should care about the church and the kingdom, but they have an incorrect perspective 
in caring for the purity of the kingdom and the purity of the field. They said, Lord, do you want us to go root up all these tares? We, we want to go find all these tares. We want to go get them out because they're going to hurt the wheat. And he said, no, don't do that. Don't do that because inevitably you're going to damage the good wheat. In Luke chapter 9, we find this zeal uh, to, to root out the tares. And, and, and unfortunately, some people still have this zeal today. And I just, I just don't understand it. I'll be honest with you. I, I don't understand why there is this, this tone in Christianity today that is just so concerned about trying to make people doubt their salvation and, and tell people that you're not going to heaven. My role is never to tell anyone that they're not going to heaven, ever. My goal is to preach the gospel, and it's foolishness to those that haven't been born again at that moment, and it means something to those that have been born again, but arguably the most important point in this is that we do not know the time period and the state that they are in and their spiritual experience that they may be an unregenerate person today, but they may be born again in the very next second. They, they may be born again today, and you may be exhibiting the worst uh, deeds of the flesh. Think about Saul of Tarsus and how wicked he was. And, and I think about those, those early church members and, I, and just in their nature, because I would have been like that too. If he was taking my, my loved one and compelling them to blaspheme and throwing them in prison and trying to kill them and consenting to the death of Stephen, I would have been just like them and said, Lord, I just can't wait till you burn him in hell for all of eternity. I can't wait till you burn Saul of Tarsus in all of eternity. But then what did God do? He born him again. And, but don't you think they were confused when that's how they felt about Saul of Tarsus? Next thing you know, he's preaching Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You do not know where they are at in their spiritual experience. And if you view just a sliver of your interactions with them and say, I, that is an unregenerate goat and they're going to be in heaven for all of eternity, God may born them again the very next minute. And I'll tell you, we can have a great testimony. We are called to love our enemies. Now we're commanded to do it. And that's good enough. But think about the testimony. Well, think about Saul for a minute. Think about the testimony that Stephen had when he consented to the death of Stephen. And Saul, when he was holding the coats of those that stoned him, when he heard Stephen say, Father, forgive them. Look at that amazing testimony that he had. How do you think that impacted the Apostle Paul when he was born again? You know, do you think maybe that was some of the thoughts that came into his mind when he was being stoned outside Lystra, when they left him for dead, when he was being stoned? And he, he may have thought about Stephen, right? Why? Because Stephen loved his enemies. And I'll tell you, we can have an amazing testimony for those and that's why it's not up to us to try to evaluate someone's state at this moment in time because they could be totally unregenerate at that moment. And yes, at that moment, they're exhibiting no fruit of the Spirit. But you know what? I can show them the love of Christ and the grace of Christ instead of being like most Christians that are going to, to be hateful toward someone. And that is the person 
if they are born again, and I love my enemies, that's the person that when they are born again and they, now they have a conviction of sin that they didn't have before, they may say, you know, all the rest of those Christians, and I know I treated them horrible, I know I did, but they were all ugly and mean and bitter. But you know what? There was this one person, though, and it seems like that they told me they were a primitive Baptist or something like, something weird, <laughs> something weird I hadn't heard before. It sounded like that they said they were a primitive Baptist or something. And that person actually showed me, and I know I was mean to them, I know I was bitter to them, but they showed me love. You know, I, I, I treated them despitefully, but they told me they were going to pray for me, and that, that just made me madder back when I was unregenerate. But now, now that I have a different heart, you know, that's something, that's somebody I want to go talk to. That's somebody that I want to know what's different about them. You see, that's the kind of testimony that we can have because that's why we don't show conditional love to people. Do you understand that? Because it's very easy to say, you know what, this person's mean to me. I'm just going to be mean to them. I'm going to ignore them. I'm going to be bitter toward them because they're bitter toward me. Look, that's the way the world works. But a Christian, a disciple of Christ, is going to love whoever is put in front of them regardless of how they treat them. And you know what, if that person is not elect and they... They have to pay the penalty for that sin. You know what? That, that's on them. But you know what? What I don't do is say, you know what? I don't like that person. I'm going to treat that person despitefully. No, I love them because you never know. You never know. God may born them again, and the person who you thought, when they were, <laughs> we'll put it like this, when the early church was praying for preachers, we pray for God to be, raise up men to preach, don't we? We pray for God to raise up men to preach. I don't think that Saul of Tarsus was on the top of their list to be their pastor, to be the preacher. I don't think they were praying for Saul of Tarsus to be their preacher. <laughs> but guess what? God moves in mysterious ways, doesn't he? <laughs> God moves in mysterious ways. And when we look out and see, Lord, how, how can you grow your church? Lord, how can you increase your kingdom? We are very short-sighted in that because we see people who we want to be members of the church. We see people who are just like us. We see people that are middle-class Caucasians. And let's just be real for a minute. We invite people to church who are just like us. Just like us. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ should be just as diverse as the elect family of God that is out of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue. I don't really know how we got in this place in America where primarily African Americans go to missionary Baptist churches. I really don't even know how that happened, honestly. How so many African American churches are, are missionary Baptists. But even among primitive Baptists, there are African American primitive Baptist churches that we don't know anything about. When's the last time a person of color came in this building? Okay, let's, let's be a little bit more personal. When's the last time you invited, listen, I've been preaching this to myself all week, so get ready. <laughs> When's the last time you invited a person of color to attend Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church? When's the last time you invited someone that looks different than you to come to this church? Because this is the kingdom of God that's supposed to reflect the family of God. That is out of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue. And then also, it's very easy to look at people and say, now I'm not saying if someone's living in a totally ungodly way 
that you go out of your way to invite them. But you know what? It doesn't mean a, a, anything to them. If you invite them and they're not born again, it's just foolishness to them. So it doesn't hurt them at all to invite. It doesn't hurt you at all to invite, invite them, does it? But if we only look at people out there that are just like us, that are clean-cut, middle-class white people, and that's who we think our church is supposed to be, we've missed the boat. We've missed the kingdom. The church and the kingdom is here for sinners. Do you understand that? Jesus came to save who? He actually, when he was condemning the Pharisees, he said, I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance. Those of you that think you have everything together, those of you that look like this model family, look, you've got a really good job and a really nice car and a really nice house and you have two and a half kids and your kids are perfectly behaved. Oh, man, that would be a great member of our church. You know, I not only not am I going to invite them, and, and, and I, know they may not come, I know they may not come the first time, but that's the person I'm going to ask the second time and the third time and the fourth time because I think that they would be a really good member of our church. Why? Because they're clean-cut, middle-class people. Listen, Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous. Who did he come to call? Sinners to repentance. Well, he created waves when he went into the publican's house. Jesus said, I am the friend of publicans and sinners. And you want to know the only friends that the publicans had? <laughs> A whole bunch of sinners. Because nobody else wanted to have any, anything to do with the publicans, did they? And that's speaking in a very general term of sinners, people who are publicly known to be sinners. But let's speak a little bit more practically. These were probably harlots. These were thieves. That's who Jesus hung out with. Do you know that? That's who Jesus had dinner with. He was the friend of publicans and sinners. And who did Jesus come to save? He came to save sinners. Save sinners of whom I am chief. The kingdom and the church is not a country club for saints that have everything together. It is a hospital for broken, sinful people. Do you understand that out of the elect family of God, that God loved a lot of people with tattoos? God loved people that had been convicted of felonies. And I'll tell you, when people come from a broken lifestyle, when they come from a broken life, the last thing they need is to come into a church and say, you got to do something. You have to live a good enough life. You have to pray a prayer. What message do they need? They need the gospel of salvation by grace alone that says it doesn't matter what, what sins you've done in the past. Every single one of those sins was paid for in the person of Jesus Christ, and it was finished on the tree of the cross. We look at people and say, you know what? Those are not the kind of people we want in our church. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'll tell you, when people are living actively in this kind of a lifestyle, unless they show repentance, they don't need to be in the church. They don't. But when someone exhibits genuine repentance... They need the structure of the church and they need the love of the kingdom more than anybody else. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and in verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, 
nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. If you're still in those sins, but every one of these sins, if you're a child of God, has been paid for in the person of Jesus Christ. And you look at that list right there, you know, those are the people we don't want to have anything to do with. That's right. They need to go to hell. Those are the people that need to burn in hell. Keep on reading now. Keep on reading. Verse 11. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. And I'll tell you, you don't need to commit the external action of committing adultery on your wife. That is a sin. But we are all adulterers before God. There's not one person over the age of 15 that is not lusted in their heart after a member of the opposite sex. They're not one single person. We are all adulterers before God. Aren't you glad that Jesus paid for your sin of adultery in your heart? Are you glad that Jesus paid for that? I'm glad he paid for that sin for me. But these are the people, no, we don't want them in our church. We don't want them in our church. Such were some of you. But you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This is who the church is for. This is who the kingdom is for, is to rehab broken sinners. And just in case you had not figured it out yet, we're all broken sinners. And you shouldn't hold it against someone for being more broken than you in a natural sense. This is who the kingdom is for. But the apostles, though, the apostles, though, back to Luke chapter 9, okay? First of all, there were some that didn't follow Jesus, Luke chapter 9 and verse 49. And it doesn't really seem like this message sunk in that well because if you look at the chronology of the Gospels, Luke chapter 9 appears to be after this in uh, Matthew chapter 13. It's very interesting. <laughs> there at the very end of that, at the end of these seven parables of the kingdom of heaven, uh, Jesus said, do you understand what I told you? And they said, oh yeah, we understand. <laughs> I think they just told him that. I think they maybe just fibbed a little bit. Uh, because they were embarrassed and they said, oh, yeah, yeah, we understand. Uh, but it maybe didn't sink in quite as much as maybe they, they acted like it did. Because it appears that after this point, John, you remember, sons of thunder, you know, that zeal they had for the Lord, the sons of thunder. John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him. I can just almost envision John. He probably didn't have his lapels in his tunic. But if he had lapels, he'd be thumbing them. Well, I'll tell you, I am proud of the fact that there is somebody that he wasn't doing exactly what I thought he ought to have done. And I told him off. I rebuked him. I told him off. And he said, Jesus said, no, you got the wrong attitude, John. Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. Listen, this world is so antagonistic toward Jesus Christ. If there's not someone that is actively persecuting you and you think they're neutral, especially someone who's actually doing things in the name of Jesus. But if they're not actively persecuting you in the big scheme of things, that's pretty good, okay? But then he goes on to say, then they went to the Samaritans. And then, there's a lot more to this because this gets into some racism too right here. It, this wasn't just about uh, people rejecting Jesus. He went into the city of the Samaritans, verse 52, went into the visual. I don't think he would have had this response personally if these were a bunch of hometown Jews, all right? But these were the Samaritans. And he went into the city of Samaritans and he didn't really like them. And then they didn't receive him. Verse 53. 
They did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And then the disciples, James and John, these sons of thunder, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? Lord, we're on your team. <laughs> we're servants of you. Lord, not only do we want to get rid of the tares, but Lord, can you give us fire from heaven power to consume these tares right now? <laughs> not only do we think that we've got the tares pegged, but Lord, please give us fire from heaven so we can burn up all these tares right now. <laughs> no, the tares will be burned if they are tares. They'll be burned up, but the Lord's going to take care of that. Okay? And then what did Jesus say? <laughs> That's the way we'd say it in the South. Now I say this. Uh, I would say that... Uh, he would say, bless his, bless his heart. But I, don't, I really don't think he was saying bless his heart, though. I think this was a pretty stern rebuke. You can't be, you can't be asking to, just because people don't act right. <laughs> you can't be asking to consume them with fire all the time, John. <laughs> you can't do this. Ye know not what manner of spirit you're of. <laughs> John, calm down. You, you don't even understand the manner of spirit that you're of. For the Son of Man, he's not come to destroy, but he's come to save them. You know, it probably would have been pretty radical to John in this moment. He didn't just say he came to, to destroy men's lives, but to save uh, them in general. No, guess what? God has a people among the Samaritans. And John would have been pretty amazed to believe that right then. Why? Because he wanted to burn them all up with fire from heaven. So, back in Matthew chapter 13... Jesus says, I, I'm glad that you care about the field. And we ought to care about the field. And the church, and we have to exercise church discipline from time to time. But they're so zealous that they said, Lord, please give us the ability to root up these tares. And he said, don't do that. Don't do that. Wait patiently until harvest time, and the Lord will take care of all that at harvest time. You know, sometimes I think that we just really lose sight of just how radical the sovereign grace of God is. Amazing grace that saved the really good, righteous people like us. <laughs> Unless you believe that you're a wretch, then amazing grace doesn't apply to you. You see? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. There's a lot of people, if we start trying to judge people by slivers of our visibility of their actions, then we're going to reach very wrong conclusions. I mean, think about, think about David, the man after God's own heart. If we, if we only knew about him where he committed adultery and he ended up murdering Uriah the Hittite, if that's all you knew about him, what would be your assessment of him? Well, there's not anything positive there, is it? I mean, those are all the works of the flesh. There's not anything positive. But sometimes you can catch somebody on a bad day. If you look at just that sliver of David's life, you're not going to have a lot of confidence in him. Okay, now let's look at it in a, in a bigger spectrum. How many people do you think? I mean, let's think about the parents of the thief on the cross. I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that they... I think there were a lot of people at the cross when that it was from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Jesus gave up the ghost at 3 p.m., but then they stayed on the cross 
for a couple more hours before sundown. So, so the, the thieves didn't die till 5 p.m. maybe, just some ballpark after that. But I think there were a lot of people there because it was all the excitement uh, from like 9 a.m. to noon, right? But then I don't think there were a lot of people there in the afternoon. I don't. Because they wanted to be there for the excitement, but I don't think when they got to where they couldn't breathe and they were suffocating to death, I don't think that many people wanted to be there for that. So think about how many people of that huge multitude were there at the beginning of the crucifixion where they heard both thieves blaspheming, right? But then most of them have went home. They went home. And it wasn't until later in the day when only a handful of people were there that we see the evidence of the quickening of that thief on the cross, right? If you asked the thief on the cross parents, his friends, even people that were there at the beginning of the crucifixion, and what is your assessment of his eternal state in your courtroom of justification by works? What's your assessment of him? Well, there's just not a lot of good, is there? I mean, I, I don't have the right to call anyone uh, uh, common or unclean, but there's just not a lot of good things to hang my hat on, is there? But outside of a couple verses in the Gospel of Luke, we would have no reason to assume anything other than a man who lived a very ungodly life and now is losing his life because of committing a crime. I have no, nothing to hang my hat on that he is a child of God at all. But God saw fit to give us information that exhibited his regenerated state, right? Now, if you looked at the totality of the thief on the cross's life, most people outside of a couple verses in the Gospel of Luke that maybe only a handful of people heard audibly, everyone would have assumed that he went to hell. And you wouldn't, you know, it's not our place to determine definitively, but you wouldn't have had any confidence to assume anything else, right? But turned out, guess what? He was an elect child of God that God didn't see fit to born again until the last few hours of his life. There's a lot of people that are in heaven that we're going to be very surprised are there. <laughs> would, you, would you have expected God to work in Rahab the harlot in Jericho? Would you have expected that? Uh, would you have expected Manasseh? I don't know if you remember in our November meeting, Brother Ben Winslet, uh, I, I enjoyed his title to his message, Hold Your Horses, The Danger of a Snapshot. And he, he talked about a few different things, but particularly Manasseh. Remember King Manasseh in the Old Testament? He shed more innocent blood from one end of the Jerusalem. He shed innocent blood everywhere. And then in one of the accounts, uh, it was nothing but bad stuff, nothing but works of the flesh. But then in the other account, you have an evidence of his prayer of repentance at the end of his life. Manasseh is someone that we, we feel like we would object. We would object. That, that's, that sinner is way too vile to be in heaven. I can't believe that God would choose people like that. I can't believe that God would allow people into his kingdom that have committed these past offenses. I can't believe that God would love murderers. Well, guess what? He loved David. And have you ever held resentment and hatred in your heart against a brother in Christ? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 
you're just as much of a condemned murderer as those that have committed the external action. You see? Mary. Mary Magdalene cast seven devils. She was probably in prostitution. These are people that we would look at and say, those are not the kind of people that definitely not the kind of people we want in our church. But I don't even know if I feel comfortable spending eternity with them. I mean, they're bad people, right? In their nature, they're bad people. You understand that that was the only option that Christ had to save. (laughs) The only option he had was to save sinners. The only option he had was to save bad people. So if we get so judgmental to look at people and say, you know what, I don't believe, I get your first person pronouns out of there. (laughs) Your opinion doesn't matter in an eternal sense. Now, you need to make judgments here in time, right? You need to make judgments in regards to fellowship. If someone's living in sin, you know what? I pray for you for Christ's sake, but I can't fellowship with you. But in an eternal sense, the wheat and the tares are not our business. The sheep and the goats are not our business. And if you can just show love and kindness and graciousness to everyone around you, first of all, the Lord's honored in it. But you also do not know when he may see fit to mourn that person again. And that may be the very best member of your church that you, that you would have never expected. Who was the greatest apostle in the early church? It was the greatest enemy of the church. You see? He said, don't try to root out the tares. You're going to damage the good wheat. In Matthew chapter 18, he is commending the little children, except you be converted and come as the little children. Uh, you shall no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. And there's a lot more here in context, but we're just going to highlight quickly in verse 6. But whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me. You know, in the context of Christian liberty, we should be willing to give up our Christian. There's, there's maybe something I have the right to do, but I'm going to choose to forgo that right because it may offend someone else. And we should do that. So we should always err on the side of never being a stumbling block. And we should always err on the side of not offending God's little bitty, sensitive babes. And Think about those stony ground people. Right? The Stony Ground people that faded away. What did they need? They didn't need judgmental Christians. They needed the structure of the body of Christ to galvanize around them in the midst of that time of trouble. Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones, in very figurative language, he said, it's better off for you to be dead. That's how God, that's how seriously God takes the, the spiritual growth. And this is not always talking about children. There's people that can be 60 years old and be a little one babe in Christ, you see? And I would hate to think that there was someone that the Lord saw fit to born again at a later date. They didn't understand what they were doing at the point that I was interacting with them. And the idea that in them looking back on their experience with me, that that would leave them with a negative taste of Christianity instead of a positive taste. You know, 
I'm born again. Now I understand things that I didn't understand before. I see what real Christian love looked like because of the way this person treated me. That's a direction that I want to go. That's a church I want to visit. Instead of saying, you know, that person was just as ugly to me as I was to them. I don't really want to pursue that person. I really don't want to get to know that person. And you know what? I'm really not a fan of, where did he say he went to again? Where did she say she went to? Some primitive Baptist church? Yeah, I saw the way that they interacted with me. Now understand, I'm not, it's hard. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to, to not render railing for railing. I mean, it's hard to, to let those things go. But we can have an amazing testimony of the grace and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And who knows? Someone that you may be at odds with today could be, at a later date, the best member of the church that you could ever imagine. There wouldn't have anyone that, that would have picked Saul of Tarsus to be the greatest apostle, were they? Nobody. But that's what God did, okay? Very quickly, <clears throat> Revelation chapter thir uh, excuse me. Revelation chapter 14, we have this picture of Jesus returning the second time, and it gives this idea of him reaping with the sickle. All right? Revelation 14, verse 14. I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud, one that sat upon it, like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Sickles were used to harvest wheat, right? And then another angel cried and came out of the temple, thrust in thy sickle and reap, for now the time has come. There's a time for harvest. And the Lord's going to take care of that harvest. Verse 16, he sat on the cloud and thrust in the sickle and the earth was reaped. Another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also having a sharp sickle. And then he thrust in the sickle and then he gathered the cluster of the grapes of the vine of the earth. The angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered it unto the vine of the earth and cast it in the great winepress of the wrath of God and the winepress was trodden without the city. Those that are the non-elect, those that are not the children of God will receive the just recompense of their reward. And then in Matthew chapter 25, we see a similar depiction of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory and before him shall be gathered all nations, and notice this, and he shall separate them one for another. And by the way, what's the criteria of the separation? <laughs> First of all, the Lord is not gonna ask your opinion about who needs to be on the right and who needs to be on the left. He doesn't need your confirmation. He doesn't need your evaluation of who you think children of God are. Because guess what? We're going to find in heaven we were wrong about a lot of people. We will. But Jesus separates the sheep and the goats. And notice the criteria of the separation. <laughs> Jesus doesn't have everyone come before him and say, okay, did you pray the sinner's prayer? Okay, you go on the right. Did you pray the sinner's prayer? No. Nope. Okay, you go on the left. Were you baptized? Okay, you go on the right. No, you go to the left. Did you live a good enough life? Did you pay tithes? These are all good things you need. Excuse me, these are all good things you need to do. But what Jesus didn't say, is there anything that you did? Oh, you did do that? That's great. Here, come to my right hand. What was the criteria of the separation? What was the criteria of the separation? Sheep and goats. You know, is there some sale 
when animals are born, is there some sale that God comes to that sale and asks that sale, would you like to be a sheep or would you like to be a goat? You know, um, I'm giving you the option. I'm giving you the, the chance to accept. You want to be a, a sheep? Okay, that's great. Uh, will, will you accept being a sheep? That is just beyond ludicrous, isn't it? We know that being a sheep and a goat is of no choice of those who end up being sheep and goats. <laughs> you want to know, uh, you wanna know uh, how uh, those animals are determined to be sheep and goats? By the choice and the sovereignty of God, right? I mean, he didn't, he didn't ask their opinion if you wanted to be a goat or a sheep. God determined who the sheep were. God determined who the goats are, and he knows which one's which, right? That's true in a natural sense, and it's sure enough true in a spiritual sense too, isn't it? You see? God's the one that divides the sheep from the goats. Those that he loved, and he said, come, you've exhibited these fruits of the Spirit, you've visited me in prison, you fed me when I was hungry and all these things, come inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But the other end of the spectrum is they did not exhibit those fruits of the Spirit. That's not the basis of their damnation. It's just the evidence of it. And he said, all right, you're going to go into eternal punishment. But God takes care of all of that at his second coming. And just be so careful. Be so careful and vigilant. We do not want to damage one of God's little children and hurt their growth and discipleship in any way. Peter said, from that vision that you gave, I used to think negatively of Gentiles, but you gave me a vision and he allowed me to understand it, that I should not call any man common or unclean. I never have the authority, and you don't either. We never have the authority to look at anyone and say, you're going to hell. Never, never. I can't think of anything worse of calling a man common or unclean than to say you're a non-elect goat that's going to burn in hell for all of eternity. <laughs> okay? We never have the authority to do that. It doesn't matter what actions they exhibit. To our, to our vantage point, we may never see the fruit of the Spirit. Now, there's fruit of the Spirit in every child of God. But to our vantage point, it may never be visible. The, our answer at the end of the day is simply, the Lord knoweth them that are His. He knows the sheep and the goats. He may have, I may not have seen one evidence of, of, of fruit of the Spirit in their life, but who knows? They may be a thief on the cross experience. It may be, they may be born again later in their life. We don't know. And since we don't know, we have no authority to proclaim them to hell. Instead, we just commend them over to the Lord, right? And we allow the wheat and the tares to grow up, and the Lord will take care of everything at harvest time, right? He'll take care of everything at harvest time because he knows who the wheat and the tares are. He knows who the sheep and the goats are, and he will deal with them accordingly. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.